I'm Nareet Ben, and this is Life Deconstructed. Intimate, open conversations with successful women on how they got to where they are, the debates, decisions, and doubts along the way, and what success even means. Our guest today is tough to sum up with a short bio, but I'll give it a shot. She spent 13 years in the CIA as an operations officer, then moved on to the Defense Department, where she became the first woman confirmed by the Senate to serve as Assistant Secretary of Defense. She was also the chair of NATO's high-level group responsible for nuclear policy, and later went on to found Metis Solutions, servicing governments around the world in defense, homeland security, and intelligence. By the time she sold it in 2016, it had been dubbed by Inc. Magazine as one of America's fastest-growing companies three years running. I could go on and on, but in the interest of actually getting a chance to talk, let me just welcome Mary Beth Long. Mary Beth, it's so good to have you. It's really wonderful to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let me just ask you what, uh, first of all, what our whole shared global experience has been. How how have these past eight months been for you or, or even recently? Do you feel a little bit back to normalcy, a semblance of normalcy? You know, the thing about Washington is, is no matter what the crisis is, it always seems to manage to keep clicking along. So while there's been a huge disruption in services and people really haven't been meeting each other with quite the amount of frequency, about a month ago, uh, people are back meeting one another social distancing, of course, everyone's wearing masks. But the tempo of the world and the changes in the world have kept pace. And being a policy wonk and an international affairs aficionado, uh, my life hasn't really slowed down much. I've been very blessed that all my families and friends are have been healthy. And I hope all your listeners are healthy too. So I want to go back with you all the way to college growing up from Clearfield, Pennsylvania, no one in your family had a college education. You ended up going to Penn State, honors, I think. Was that important for you? I, I mean, was going to college, was did you have something, a, a direction in mind at that point? You know, ever since I was a little girl, I knew I was going to do something outside of Clearfield. Um, I used to tell my family I was going to be president, which is strange because I never really organized myself to do that. I knew I was going to go to college. I was a big reader as a kid. I loved to read. I did not want to go to Penn State. I wanted to go as far away from my hometown as possible. I loved my hometown. I still love my hometown. But I, from the very beginning, I think books opened up for me a huge wide world. And I knew I was going to do everything possible to dive into that wide world. So, the, well, the first, you did, you seemed to do that pretty quickly, actually, in college. I know you studied in Taiwan. Tell me a little bit about how that happened. I mean, how you got there and how that shaped you, because my impression is that it was sort of a, an eye-opening moment for you or a turning point. I have to say probably the most, there have been a lot of important points, but if I had to choose one, that was probably it. Wow. I um, went to college with fairly fluent Spanish, and the degree I was working on required that you take language. And Chinese was offered early in the morning, which I liked early in the morning class to get them out of the way. And it was offered several times a week. And for me, with languages, I'm a repetitive person. So the more times in a week, uh, the more chance I had of tuning my ear. So I took these Chinese classes, really enjoyed it. It was a very small class, of course. This was in the 80s. Some of you probably weren't even born then. And um, no one was speaking Chinese then. So it evolved to this 
uh, opportunity to study abroad. Um, the university didn't have a program, but one of our other Ivy League schools did. So I ended up studying in Taiwan, and then I ended up staying for another semester and traveling in Beijing. And not only did it teach me the language, but it was like going to a whole new planet from someone who was from a very small town um, that was very insular. So I learned uh, self-sufficiency. I learned confidence. I learned that people are so different, and it's such a, a magical palette of opportunities and colors and shapes and sizes um, that it's it's like diving into a paint pool of, of rainbow colors but on the one hand but on the other hand we're all very much fundamentally the same and I just became fascinated with how people are different and the same at the same time um, you know halfway across the world with very different moral groundings frankly my eyes opened wide and I thought this is something that I want to never be far from in my life. When you say it taught you confidence, is that just a product of being on your own for the first time so far away from home and having to figure everything out yourself? That and living in a Chinese dorm with Chinese roommates. Um, so there was very little English and um, learning how to eat properly and travel properly. It was a lot of being on your own combined with learning it in a different language, combined with being in an environment that you never really even dreamed of. All of that at once, I think, was was a an incredible learning opportunity. Yeah, I don't I think that's something that is sometimes I mean there's a lot of study abroad in the US, but I don't think there's enough of taking time to travel. It's kind of sometimes a taboo, maybe less, but there's this notion you gotta you finish high school, you start university, you finish university, you start your job, but it's a, it can be such a life changing experience. I think if I were to do it again, uh, I did it the American way, one thing after another, and I would definitely want to take a little bit of time because there's only so many times in your life you can just pick up, go somewhere else, and and be thrown in the deep end like you're talking about, like your experience in Taiwan. So if I understand right, you're at Penn State, and you see a what was it like a bulletin board or something? It was a bulletin board that said, have interviews with the CIA. And I was late. So I, by the time I, I took the thing off the bulletin board, they had already booked. But one of my professors said, ah, you speak Chinese. Uh, we'll set something up. So I ended up actually interviewing with the Chinese professor who put me in touch with the CIA. And we went to dinner because he had no slots left during the day. And he, they recruited me uh, in part because of my language, languages at that point, also in part because I'd spent so much time abroad for someone in that era of that age, having lived abroad in China by myself um, for six months and then Taiwan for six months was unusual. That's a good lesson that even if the metaphorical list is, is full and there's no room, that there is always a way to get on the list. <laughs> Don't walk away from the list. Change change your life getting on that list, that's for sure. Did you have any idea, do you think, when you, if you think back to that dinner, you're sitting down with this professor and they're kind of pitching you, I guess, about you know learning about you and pitching you what this could be. Do you think you had any idea what you were getting into? Clueless. I had no idea. <laughs> and in fact, at the end of the dinner, I was really interviewing him about, well, what do you do? What opportunities do you have? What subjects do you work on? Where do you get to go? It, interestingly, in those days, I wasn't particularly interested in practical issues like where do I get to live uh, and what salary will I make? I was much more interested in 
whether or not it would be something that I could see myself doing for the rest of my life. I'm from a family that in the 50s and 60s, you know, you, you join a company and you work there for as long as you can and you become a company guy or gal. So for me, it really had to be something that I could be passionate about for the rest of my life. And the great thing about the CIA or international anything is that the, literally the world is your platform um, and you're never going to run out of problems or subjects or opportunities. So it, it fit that little interest niche that I had already developed. What was that first year like? I mean, was it at all what you expected? Because I imagine no matter how much training you have, it's never like being plunged into the real thing. Between college and CIA, I actually worked for an Arab bank for a little while. So I thought I would take advantage of that opportunity and travel to Beirut and Amman, Jordan and pick up a little bit of Arabic. So by the time I hit CIA, I'd, I'd been fairly well-traveled. My first year, because I was young, I was um, one of the youngest in our class, um, was thrilling, frankly. Intimidating, thrilling. We had people in my class that had been in CIA for quite some time. And then we had a small portion, about a third of us, who were totally new to the agency. And the first year was sort of a familiarization year, a lot of testing you spent, or in the days when I was there, we spent 20 weeks in paramilitary training, uh, static line jumping out of airplanes. And 20 weeks. 20 weeks, yeah. Off, off-site in living in barracks. It was a blast. I literally remember um, doing some night operations where my colleagues and I looked at each other. I'm laughing because I remember it so well and said, oh, we can't believe they're paying us to do this. It was so much fun. I was going to ask if there were moments that you kind of thought, oh God, I can't do this or, you know, we're, we're too intimidated, but it sounds like it was actually a wild ride and, and not so much the case, right? It was. Um, a lot of people in, in my day, we did uh, the hostage taking exercise where you spent three days in a faux hostage taking situation where you were incarcerated you were interrogated. Um, that was the litmus test about who was going to make it and who not. Some people didn't make it. I There were a couple times that I was disoriented, I would say. One of the things they do is, is try to uh, very quickly have you lose time and lose a sense of self. But I didn't find it as difficult as some folk, in part, I think, because I'm at that point, I was much smaller than most of the men in our class. And so some of the, the quote-unquote torture, the stress, conditions of, they put us in boxes and kept us there for a long time. You were more compact. I was more compact. And I actually was able to fall asleep a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine after, after falling asleep in hostage training, you can probably sleep anywhere, anywhere in the yeah, world. You can. So it wasn't, it wasn't so bad. And then afterwards, you do your operational training for another four months. And it was it was fun. I I really enjoyed uh, my CIA career. If anything, I think all of that, that even in such a difficult situation that, you know, you found the fun in it is an ultimate sign. And for everyone, whether it's a CIA or any other kind of job that you are in the right direction and in the right place, you're actually excited to learn and feel challenged all the time. I mean, it's not exactly a standard HR run job (laughs) when we're talking about the CIA. I mean, I wonder, this is such a, a massive 
and secretive organization. How much control did you actually have over where you'd end up within the CIA? I mean, of, of what kind of work you might be doing, of where you might be going, of, of what your career is going to look like there? Very little. Um, your first couple of years, particularly if you started as young as I did, were very structured um, in making sure that you got the training, that you got exposure to different organizations. At the end of your training, your, your operational training, is when you receive your first assignment. And they, they rack and stack you. They basically put you in a list of one to the last member. And they do ask you for your, um, your three preferences uh, from a geographic standpoint in those days. Do you want to work in East Asia, Africa? No one presumed to say that I want to work in a specific country on a specific topic. Then basically, there's a bidding process where the heads of HR or the heads of the divisions go through the class and select the, the case officers they want. I was an operations officer, of course, so it's different for everybody else in CIA. Now, you're, you're smart enough that during the visits of the people who are coming to pitch you to try to encourage the class to choose their division, uh, to make sure that the division chief knows your name of those divisions that you wanted to work in, um, that you, if you could. There's always politics, a little There's bit of politics. And networking, yeah, of course. <laughs> which is a whole, I mean, that's a big thing to learn. That's, that's not so easy. It's arguably one of the toughest things for a lot of people to learn. I agree. In, in those days, there were so few women in the agency, um, almost none. Your networking had to be in the old boys network. And if there's one thing that has shaped me, I think probably going forward is that I grew up in, um, in an old boys, very male dominated profession and learned to network like the boys, but also picked up very masculine approaches to things that have served me both well, um, but also have not served me well in particular situations. I'm very aggressive. I'm curious. I'm This comes up again in the State Department. So this is, is, is a running thread. But for now, I mean, in the experience you're talking about, when you are barely ever serving with women, I, I think you were in a few stations where you're the only woman. What does that mean practically to sort of learn how to not just to fit in and sort of stand your ground and, and take up the space that you deserve to have, but to network like the boys, like you said? You know, I found being a, uh, the only woman in the station and in, in most of my jobs to be both an advantage and a disadvantage. Any of the women who are out there listening know exactly what I'm talking about. And it was mystifying to the men in, in the agency who at one point asked me to help train women um, that what, how women would feel that automatically. We all know that there are certain, when you or I walk into a room, people hear a certain music. And when Arnold Schwarzenegger walks into the room <laughs> or, um, or Benny Gantz walks into the room, people hear a very different music. And I think women in particular know what their music is or learn what their music is, and they manipulate the music depending on their situation. Sometimes it's va 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 and sometimes it's you know a patriotic song. That was an advantage because I found my male colleagues to be uh, much more singular in their approach. I think women are more flexible in a male's environment. Though I did find myself being a little more forceful than probably I naturally would have been, a little more aggressive, assertive. Mm -hmm. One thing though that I adopted very early on, and I think it's not. I think it's gender neutral, was that I always was the smartest person in a room, at least as far as, far as preparation. I never walked into a room where I didn't feel that I was prepared on the subject matter 
or that I knew what the boss wanted to talk about, or I knew what the inquiry was and I was ready for it. Secondly, I never missed an opportunity to volunteer for something, but no matter what it was really, whether it seemed like a trivial thing or it seemed like an exciting opportunity that I wasn't quite sure I was ready for. I think being with guys taught me to put stretch myself a little bit more and that ended up serving me very well. Um, I think it serves um, anyone well. So those two things I walked away from in the positive. In the negative, I do tend to sometimes be a little intimidating with my my bluntness. Some people find it refreshing, some people don't. Um, and I'm quite difficult when it comes to meeting expectations. I hold myself and my peers at, at a very high level. And if you try to meet it, that's great. If you don't bother, I find it difficult to um, work closely with those who are trying to who take a more lackadaisical approach. Well, I think first of all, on the blunt note, at least here, that's all I want. I'm very excited for you to be as, as blunt as possible. The the other element of, of the sort of being difficult or high expectations, I do feel like, well, I mean, of course, there, there's two sides to it, but I do feel like that's something that women might be asked to apologize for a little bit more. You know, I don't think that if you were in the same, uh, you, you tell me, but if you were in the same roles, setting the same expectations and with the same need for those expectations to be met, if you think you would be seen the same way or your requirements would be seen the same way. So glad you said that. I do think that women are criticized for their high expectations and holding people accountable much more than guys. I mean, I, every woman I know tries the balance between the about being sharp elbowed in the vernacular or being a, a witch um, and being too, um, <laughs> too uh, empathetic and nurturing. I'm not nurturing. I don't know many guys who are. Um, I think particularly in DOD one day, the Secretary of Defense had two women in his room, myself and another. And he said, you know, both of you are the only senior officers that I've received complaints about. I've never, I mean, I've prided myself on never having anyone complain about me. And I and the other woman, were, we were shocked. And Not he, a coincidence. Mm-hmm. And he said, uh, you both have sharp elbows, meaning that we're demanding and that we, it's either contribute or get out of the way, frankly. What do you do, though, Mary Beth, when you hear something like that? Because when you have so many years of experience at that point around men where you see that there is a certain kind of behavior that actually gets you in the door, that gets you heard, that gets your opinions heard, and that it's worth hearing your opinions, and then your boss says, well, you know, maybe you should soften those elbows, what's, what's your reaction? Um, yeah, the first immediate reaction was to be defensive, frankly. Um, the other complaint was that we swore, that we used the vernacular which is everyone knows, every American uses the vernacular. And of course the guy did. So my first reaction was to be defensive. Uh, generally, I stand my ground, but I do um, try to take it um, and be more sensitive about the people to whom I happen to be dealing. I don't deal with bureaucracies well, and I tend to if, if be quite impatient and there is a place where I can improve myself. So I really have, um, on several occasions, even gone to a managing counselor. When I was running my company, I found that while at the Department of Defense, my toughness was appreciated and I got things done. In the corporate world, it really was off-putting to good workers. And I had to adjust. 
So I both stand your ground and, and take a real hard look at yourself and, and be more aware of your situation and adapt. What are the legitimate things that you can take away from, you know, from a piece of criticism? Are there people, I mean, especially if we're talking about and, and still staying on those 13 years in the CIA, did mentorship play a role in your life, in your career? Did you find or seek out people that sort of helped your path along the way? Yes, by, by accident each time. And they were all um, early bosses that I um, worked really hard for. First one in in the morning, last one out at night, who um, you know, unofficially kept in touch with me over the years, sort of kept an eye on my careers. If I needed help or had a question, I would go to them. Some of them, my very first boss at CIA, I still go to um, as a mentor. So always. I'm never a woman, unfortunately. I never... I never. It met. doesn't sound like there were many women above you anyway. There weren't. Neither CIA had that opportunity. Overall, when you look at the skill set, and again, since I know you can't go into too many detail, but the skills that you learned in those years in the CIA, probably you know, in radically different contexts than any of us learn any skills. But are there particular things other than what you've talked about that you think really served you well in civilian life? I mean, skills that you think maybe could serve all of us well? Yeah, actually, there are. Um, the first one really was, I had that, this mentor that I was telling you about tell me early on, do always do something that you like, um, and you'll be good at it, you'll be able to put your heart into it, and your heart being into it will make you advance faster and be better at it. And you'll be, you'll zoom professionally. And I always was very lucky in that I advanced very quickly and was scored very highly. I, I passed up jobs that were better jobs or higher profile jobs a couple of times because my heart wasn't in it. And I just didn't think I could be passionate about it. And the second thing was work for someone you like. Don't work for an idiot or an, or an ass, frankly, because uh, no matter how you think it's going to advance your career, it, it, it doesn't and it makes you miserable. The third thing is be yourself. At CIA, being a woman of that age, there were no models. You, you always are looking around to see who's doing better or who's making mistakes. And one of the things he taught early on was everybody has their own thing. And if you're true to that thing, uh, you'll be more successful professionally. You'll find your way. Um, and I think those three things um, at CIA really, really have framed my entire life. And don't be afraid of learning new things. Really sort of my four mantras of, of, of life is stretch yourself, but be yourself. That's fantastic advice and, and relevant across the board. And so many times people don't actually do that. It sounds kind of simple, you know, to do something you're passionate about or that you like or work for someone you like. But most of us, most of the time, aren't actually in that situation because of we feel some sort of need. Well, if I just do this or if I just spend X amount of time here or, you know, climb up the ladder in this way, then then I'll succeed. But that's not that's not the only way. I'm asked all the time by guys and gals. What courses should I take in school? What languages should I learn? What job should I look for next? I have never known from one year to the other what I think I'm going to be doing the next year. And I really, I, I don't ascribe, and I feel so badly that this generation feels so pressured that there's some kind of path and if they go off the path, they have to get back on or they need to work for this guy or that guy or they need to have this job or that job within this many years. 
it's it's not true. I really feel deeply that you need to find your own path. And there's no mistakes that you can make as long as you're happy and doing well in your job and in your personal life. The, the rest will come. I, I truly believe that. I find that deeply comforting. <laughs> I think a lot of other people will too. I'm going to repeat that, cut that soundbite and repeat it to myself. I don't know even where you'd begin with this, but I just have to ask before I, I let go of the CIA chapter of your life, was there any, maybe there are multiple, but was there sort of some kind of watershed moment for you, whether it's an event or a personal realization or a particular operation or something that really was burned in your mind? Yes. I was working in a um, Latin American country. And at the time, I was very unhappy at the subject matter I was working on. I was, it was in the 80s and I was working on international financial crimes and narcotics, drugs. And I was heading a unit with DEA that was doing um, a big operation, a multi-country operation against the Cali cartel, not a, an enemy to mess with. And there came a time we found a target and I dressed up one night and went to an event and I knew who my target was. And long story short, we recruited the target and uh, sometime later we were able to take down the Cali cartels at that point in time, the largest arrests, proliferation of arrestees, eight different countries, dozens of people uh, at very high levels, and the largest cache of cocaine ever. Um, and in fact, it was written up in The Economist. It was such a oh. huge. But um, during that time period, I was very exposed because I had recruited this one individual and he quit um, before all of this happened. And my parents found out I worked for the agency when one of his family members got their my home address and oh my God. parents a letter. Yeah. Well, something they're supposed to be insulated from, but yep. just went straight to their front door. It, um, the Cali cartel had penetrated the embassy and was able to get into my personnel records. How do you deal though with that? I mean, I, I have to assume that there's fear around that. Forget it for your parents, of course, but for yourself. I mean, how do you deal with, with fear for your own life, with fear of, you know, getting into those situations? Is that something that you feel like you just learned in the, in training? Yeah. I mean, first for my parents, you know, for anybody to bother my parents, they're, they're from the smallest town in the, in the woods, literally, that wasn't really something I was too worried about. The agency was great. I stayed in Washington and worked for a while where, um, of course, my security profile could be better monitored. And I went to law school while I worked in order to take advantage of the time that I was cooling off a little bit um, until things sort of calmed down. So um, it was exciting, but it was a little bit of an eye opener about you know i you know the russians the cubans the iranians those were enemies and threats that i was accustomed to the cali cartel was a very different level of um of threat that i hadn't really contemplated so it was um someday i'll write a book Incredible. about <laughs> yeah i think you kind of have to write a book by definition <laughs> the life experience you have, there's some there's some sort of requirement to put that on paper. I, I'll I'll look forward and read it and not ask you the million questions I have that could end up in the book. But after so after law school, I mean you you exit the CIA, you end up at DOD, you have a few roles, but you're the first woman to be appointed and confirmed by the Senate as an assistant secretary of defense. I mean, did you what was it like coming into that? Did you feel confident from all this experience, I mean, like you just said, you face threats from Russia, from the Middle East, from Latin American drug cartels. I mean, you've really been in it. Was it at all nerve wracking or or did you feel, did you walk in there feeling like you belonged and, and had that confidence? Oh, heck no. Um, 
I was super confident that I could do the job because I had been the deputy um, and, and several jobs lower than that. Um, so the job didn't intimidate me. But the person I was replacing was one of these people whose names are thrown around as the gods of policy and military strategy. So I wasn't sure that I had, that I was quite mature enough, frankly, professionally. And as Secretary Rumsfeld said, he wasn't quite sure that I was seasoned enough. And he may have been right in some respects, frankly. Um, In hindsight, though, there have been much less seasoned. So I suppose I was okay. I'll tell you what I wasn't prepared for. So the professional part of it, no issues. I was not prepared for the the political aspect of the confirmation. The confirmation project or process was horrific. When you so when you enter there, were you are you still the only woman in the room or in the meeting room? And these are high high level rooms, high level negotiations, policy making, et cetera, et cetera. What 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 did the rooms look like? So I attended the de- the deputies committee, which is the the National Security Council level right below the minister level. And I was always the only woman in that room. Oh, wow. I mean, I'm not surprised, but wow. Um, Whenever I would attend the principal's meetings, um, Secretary Rice, of course, would be there. And she and I would be the only women in the room. Two two women with sharp elbows. I hope hope you didn't hear that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. At DOD, uh, I was the only woman, I think, above the deputy assistant secretary level. So yes. Did you feel that other than the very obvious awareness of the situation, but did that come play out in ways that, that actually affected? Not really. To be honest, I think I was so used to it from CIA. It, it played itself out as a practical issue. Um, for example, so I would go on behalf of the Secretary of Defense to meet ministers, um, particularly in the Middle East, the Minister of Defense and the Chief of the Forces. And um it always was a bit noticeable when they weren't aware that I was female. The assumption would be, oh, it's a guy. Uh, there were some awkward moments when there was no bathroom in the entire building, that oh, wow. there were no women in the entire building. And Had never faced that challenge before. No. And, you know, the people's eyes would get really big and you see a lot of scrambling to find some place for me to have a, uh, a bio break, um, as they would call it. But um, frankly, I... After me, um, there were a lot of women who had my position and higher. Um, Michelle Florinoy actually became the undersecretary. But for the for um, for my period, I was sort of the first one, so it took a little bit of time for practical issues like, you know, bathrooms, the basics, guys. There were a couple times my clothes were lost, so I had to wear and borrow men's military clothes in order to make my meetings. Those were a little awkward. <laughs> It was fine. In in that same space, I mean, in all those jobs, and I imagine particularly in the last one, and also at NATO for that matter, you were involved in really high-level negotiations. What do you think makes you a good negotiator, makes anyone, but maybe you in particular? I mean, what what allowed you to succeed in that space, or, or how did you learn it in the first place? I think I'm an excellent negotiator, um, in part because I um, play both the blunt person, quite demanding, uh, but I'm also am not beyond playing a bit of a soft um, female role either. There's a wonderful example, and I hope I don't get in trouble by using it with 
with Amos Gilad. I was in a meeting with Amos, and it was uh, myself and uh, General Gilad and uh, four or five of his highest level generals, and me with my highest level generals. And it was about QME, the qualitative military edge that Israel must maintain over its its Middle Eastern neighbors. So <clears throat> we were having a bit of a squabble where the U.S. wanted to do something that the Israelis were against. And there, the presentation was supposed to be Israel telling us why we were wrong. And and always at the beginning of these meetings, when you're at super high levels, there's an awful lot of, there's a dance that goes on in addition to the information. Who controls the conversation? Who controls the room? And no one wanted to go first. So I, as the host, of course, said, General Gilad, please give us your presentation. And he came back and said, oh, no, you've been such wonderful hosts. Please, we'd love to understand how you came to your... After you. No, no, General Gilad, it would be wrong. I see that your briefer is already... I'm happy to hear your first slide. He came right back and said, no, no, Miss Long, because you have arrayed your generals, and I see there are so many in the room. I don't want to take their time. Please go first. And at this point, I did something that shocked many people. I put my hand on Amos's arm and I said, Amos, you have always treated me with the utmost respect. I'm sure that you wouldn't refuse a lady's request that you please go first. And I don't think he expected it because it was out of character and the Israelis went first. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. I really can imagine that room and that that sort of power struggle ping pong for, as you put it, who controls the room and, and who gets off on, on the right foot. And that's, I think that's a great also way to, a, a great example of what you're talking about before, about using different versions of yourself. You know, sometimes you have to be the hard ass and very blunt and very firm, but then sometimes using a first name and saying, hey, listen, do this for me, can just change the entire atmosphere and, and disarm someone. Yeah. Disarm a whole bunch of generals, I guess. Yeah, all their all their eyes were wide open, like, <gasps> you know, they couldn't imagine another general doing that. But I, in NATO, when we had nuclear impasses where the U.S. was, you know, much more hawkish and the Germans and others in particular, because they have coalition governments, really wanted to de-emphasize the nuclear, I would often get up out of my chair and go sit beside a colleague who I really needed to make a change and um, tell the rest of the room to go take five minutes and go to the restroom while my colleague and I talked. And I found that the one-on-one of the softer Mary Beth was very effective. Mm -hmm. Sometimes also to have that private space, because I can imagine that when the more people are involved, the more maybe ego and you know, facade and and a whole kind of atmosphere that needs to be created. And as soon as someone's alone, they can allow themselves to break that a little bit and have a little bit more of a real intimate conversation. I'm sure all of that served you really well in everything you've done since. I mean, so you leave, so really, if you take DOD and and CIA together, so many years under this government structure of some kind, really the, the world's biggest company, and you start your own company, you start Meta Solutions in 2018 to provide services for governments around the world. I mean, tell me just a little bit about the decision to, you know, what it was like leaving public service and going private and being also your own boss for, I mean, really your own boss for the first time. I was, um, crazy to do it, frankly. I could have uh, joined a think tank or become one of these talking heads, but I was so committed to the fact that so many of my colleagues in uniform were still out on the battlefield. 
And I didn't have the option of continuing to serve because of the change in governments. That for me, I just couldn't see a path to me being happy in the short term unless I were contributing to the military efforts um, abroad. We were still very much in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I just wasn't ready uh, to walk away. So I started this company thinking I could keep my fingers in the pie. In retrospect, um, it worked out very well. Um, I sold it, and, and from a financial standpoint, it was tremendously successful, but it was successful because I hired um, two exceptional guys who were really good at it, and they taught me how to be a CEO. I was a terrible chief executive officer when I started. I hadn't quite made the transition from DOD to the civilian life. Um, I needed to step back and be much less demanding and directive. I needed to be much more patient. I had a lot to learn. I learned the mechanics of it, I learned rather quickly. And since I was a lawyer, I knew the mechanics. But the dealing with people, and um, the process of just meetings after meetings after meetings after meetings to get anything done was something that I had to learn to appreciate. I was smart enough to roll up my sleeves very early on and did some of what I was asking my folk to do myself. Everything from photocopying papers to sitting down and writing papers in other people's businesses about things that I never would have contemplated doing because they were not, they were things that I had done 20 or 30 years ago and I had advanced. But it, it really helped humble me and helped me learn the business and learn what I needed from my folk. But I, if I had to do it again, I would um, take a different approach. I was very lucky, but I was not prepared and I was not a good boss for a couple of years, frankly, until I learned I learned how to be a better business person. Yeah, well, there are so many things that you really can only learn by doing. And from what, what I'm hearing from you, I, my sort of takeaways are, are that no matter how big you are, no matter how much experience when you're coming into something, especially at that level, to be willing to get your hands dirty, to to do all the small stuff also, to just familiarize yourself with it to learn and to also know exactly. when to bring in people that complement the stuff that you don't know how to do. Yeah, exactly. So before I let you go, because I do have to let you go at some point and everyone will just have to wait for the book <laughs> to, <laughs> to hear all the other stories, just globally, bigger picture. I think, I mean, one of the things th that we look at a lot on Life Deconstructed is just this, the concept of success. And a lot of times when we start out, the notion of what success looks like, what it should look like, whether it's experience, financial, personal, whatever it is, is one thing. And I find it, it changes a lot after you've actually cut your teeth and, you know, gone through all this life experience. So for you, do, have you found that? I mean, what is success for you today versus what it might have been? I remember when I was 30, I was in a CIA station with the only woman I ever served with. And it was a Saturday and we were still working and none of the guys were there. And we said, oh my gosh, we want to be GS-13s and make $30,000 by the age of 30. And that to us was success. And we got there. I think success changes as you advance through life. I'm now in my 50s. I have, I'm not a big on toys. So for me, success is being able to travel as much as I want to travel. So there's a financial element. 
being able to spend time with my family and friends as much as I want to, and being engaged, being able to do what I want to do. But for me, that's being engaged. I think particularly when women and men get to that point in their careers in their 40s and 50s, when they really come into their own, it it changes. And being happy becomes much more central um, to where you are because you're looking at the tail end. So being happy. And I'm happy. And that comes right back to the the four commandments you were talking about yeah. that you that you learned in the CIA and thanks to some of your of your bosses of just actually doing what interests you and what makes you passionate. Because I think when when you're on the starting end of that, it can sound like, oh yeah, okay, whatever. I can't follow my passions because I want to be successful. I can't just do whatever seems interesting and follow that path because I gotta make money, I gotta be successful. But most often if you really do that, you know, really committed then that does lead to to the success that you end up wanting down the line. <laughs> I, really, I truly believe that. Well, Mary Beth Long, thank you so much for taking a, a journey with us back <laughs> through your, your Penn State and CIA days and everything since. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. It's been a real delight and um, I'd love to work with you again. That'd be great. Thanks so much for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe and send us your thoughts, any questions that you want answered or women you want to hear from. Write to us on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And hold on, here's a peek at next week's episode. Co-founder of The Coveteur, Stephanie Mark, on how she turned a passion project with a couple of friends into a multi-million dollar business and the good, the bad and the ugly along the way. It is so freeing. Once I was like, oh, you, I just don't think are necessarily good at this one thing. Because then you can kind of like take the responsibility away and you can say, that's not for me. I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.